Hello, this is Deb from Deb's Data Dojo, part of the Calling All Beings podcast network. Today, I get to speak to Ron Westrom. Ron graduated with honors from Harvard before getting a PhD in sociology from the University of Chicago. In addition to being a sociologist and a MUFON consultant, he has worked as a professor and has written numerous books, including Sidewinder, Creative Missile Design at China Lake. He has worked as a consultant for a number of companies, including Lockheed Martin and Rand, as a public speaker, and as a reviewer for the National Science Foundation. He assisted with the formation of the Society of Scientific Exploration. Ron has been contributing to research related to UFOs and experiencers for decades. Ron joins me today to talk about experiencers and um, I am very grateful that you're here today, Ron. So thank you so much for coming. It's my pleasure. Great. So we wanted to make um, some content for UAPMC and it just so happens we were able to do two things at once, which is amazing. Um, but I, I really want to highlight what you want to tell people and inform people about related to experiencers and sociological impact on experiencers. Okay. <laughs> so where would you like to begin, Ron? Can you please uh, tell people some of the things that you have seen as an impact on experiencers? Okay, well, let me start with the first sort of my introduction to experiencers, which took place about 1976. And at that time, I was doing a lot of field investigating of UFOs, and that's what we called them back then. And uh, in the process of doing that, uh, I came across a woman who had definitely had an extraordinary experience. And so I drove down to the small town in Michigan uh, where this lady lived. And my introduction to the impact was watching her bounce off the walls in her kitchen for eight hours. She was so revved up, extremely anxious, that she could barely sit still. Um, <laughs> the thing that particularly bothered me at the time was she didn't serve any food. So it was eight hours straight with... Uh, wow. Listening. But um, she was very, very upset. And at the time, I didn't find out everything that happened. Uh, this was a complicated case. And eventually, another researcher came by who was female and was able to get her to tell her things that she wouldn't tell me. But I think the most significant thing that I saw immediately was this extraordinary anxiety about what had happened to her. And what happened to her was that she had been the evening and her son says, mother, look at the airplane. And she says, what airplane? And so she, she's got these canning things in her hand and she steps out of the kitchen onto the porch and right by the barn is this huge 20 foot red sphere. So she freaked out. She just absolutely lost it. And then to make things worse, something that she described as about the size of a double bed that was going like this, came down next to her and started talking to her. 
So by the time uh, evening rolled around and her husband, who was a truck driver, returned, she was sitting on the top of the stairs in her house with a shotgun, loaded shotgun, and she was absolutely freaked out of her mind. So as time went on uh, and this sighting was explored, uh, it turned out that as a child, she had been in an orphanage. And she remembers being in the orphanage where there were all these beds basically lined up in parallel one night. And then she remembers <clears throat> something coming down by the window, sort of like a big disc, and then tilting. And all of a sudden, these little creatures came into the orphanage, and she pretended to be asleep. She's absolutely scared out of her mind. And so they came up to her, and they put what she described as two probes through her eyes. Um, um, I think she was, how old did I say she was? Seven or 11 or something, something like that. She was a very young child. And so that was the introduction to this stuff. So everything that happened later on in life then was interpreted because of this thing having happened to her. So the first observation I would make is that for a lot of experience, there's the first experience, if this was the first experience, um, is not the only experience and will typically sort of set the scene for later experiences. Wow, that, that's pretty um, interesting because I do see also the pattern that a lot of people who are in kind of like a school setting or even almost like a group home, orphanage, um, have experiences like that. Like what is yeah. it about a co collection of children that seems to attract the phenomenon? That's an interesting pattern that I've noticed. Um, yeah, it may be that the, the truth is, is that they're attracted to the person and the context in which the person is uh, almost doesn't matter because they can essentially control all the other people so that they don't get up and move around or whatever. Um, but the thing is, is that what we do know about experiencers is very often these experiences run in families. So it's a useful rule of thumb that if mom or dad is an experiencer, probably some of the kids are too. And so in this particular case, uh, this young woman's name is Alicia. Um, she was she was very disturbed by all this, and it took it took some hypnosis basically to try to get her to relax a little bit. Um, but meanwhile, the whole family was having poltergeist events. They would hear things that were not normal. Um, they would smell smells that were not normal. Um, and this was my introduction, not only to uh, experiencers, but also uh, poltergeist phenomenon. Right, um, which some people call the hitchhiker effect now. Um, it, and other people say it's just a paranormal connection to all of these things that there's something that correlates. Well, my, my own theory about it is that poltergeist events are typically the result of two things. One of them is biological susceptibility, and the other is, is typically some sort of trauma. 
So you put those two things together and you've got somebody who basically is doing what, uh, or causing what we, what we call poltergeist phenomena. Um, I, the hitchhiker effect is something different. A uh, hitchhiker effect is an interpersonal passage of this phenomenon from one person to another. And um, that wasn't what happened in this case. I mean, this lady was definitely traumatized. And in fact, this was how I discovered post-traumatic stress syndrome, because when I went to some psychologists and I described this, they said, oh, it's, you know, it's post-traumatic stress syndrome. Well, I had never heard of that before, uh, but she definitely exhibited this. And I'm sure the poltergeist stuff was simply part of the PTSD, uh, which of course, and the poltergeist stuff, of course, made everything seem more weird. Uh, fortunately in time, Alicia was a basically a very social person and she talked about this with her friends. Her friends were at first very skeptical, but finally very accepting. And it got to the point where she actually was giving local radio broadcasts about paranormal phenomena. Um, which actually I think was a very successful outcome. So she got over the fear and the stress and stuff like that and basically then became a, um, a sort of local celebrity. I was going to say, it's a little bit like taking control of the situation. Absolutely. So that's that's one of the things that we see when we look at this. And also, of course, the son who had said it's an airplane also had some unusual events himself. He described the little people that he saw to his mother. And um, I, don't, I don't know the details because I never talked to him personally. But um, the, the there are other interesting aspects of this. If, if we had more time, I'd go into. But um, the person who was the other investigator was a, a woman named Iris Mock, who was going around the country looking at what we probably would now call experiencers and um, was doing it with uh, James Harder, who was a professor at Berkeley. It's a well-known uh, person involved in parapsychology and basically um, abductions and so forth. Um, so anyway, that was, my, that was my introduction to experiencers. Um, but the more time I spent with uh, experiencers, and I got to meet a lot later on, uh, the more interesting the whole phenomenon became in terms of, you know, it is not necessarily a solitary experience. There can be other people who are taken at the same time you are. Uh, whether you see them uh, on the craft or whatever the place you're taken to is, um, that doesn't matter so much. But the basic point is, is that there's plenty of people around who are also likely to be subjects of uh, experimentation or whatever you want to see it as. Um, so I can remember, you know, going on a couple more decades and here, here is a living room full of experiencers. And what are they doing? Well, they're exploring what experiences they've had and what experiences the other people had. Um, so if these things happen to you, it's nice to have other people who have had similar experiences because then at least you know that some other people understand what you're going through. And, and that, that does seem to be part of the bonding that happens between experiencers. Um, it seems that often when experiencers are together in a room, they have this 
almost immediate connection. I've even heard some claim that they can recognize who is an experiencer in a room before they're told. Have you heard that before? No, but I, I did talk to uh, a famous experiencer who appears in uh, Bud Hopkins' book, Intruders, Debbie. And I asked, I, I asked her the following questions. I said, okay, I said, well, given that, you know, often police can recognize other police and crooks can recognize other crooks and so forth. Can you recognize other experiencers? And uh, she said, yes. I said, well, how do you do that? And she said, well, it's their eyes. And so I wasn't entirely convinced, but I'm still not entirely convinced that that's what it was. But she did say, because I, I asked her, I said, well, so what does this mean in terms of how many people are likely to be experiencers? You know, can you tell me, you know, like one out of how many are likely to be experiencers? And she said, oh, about one in 25. Wow. Well, <laughs> it's worth noting right now that you were affiliated with something known as the Roper Poll that was also part of a pamphlet that um, was published by Bigelow in the 90s. And yes. they had a different number. Can you can you uh, talk a little bit about that and what number they came up with? Yes, yeah, so let me say a little bit about the poll. So back in the late 80s and 90s, a bunch of us wanted to find out, well, okay, how many experiencers are there in the American population? You know, what's, what's the frequency? So uh, Dave Jacobs and Bud Hopkins, both famous uh, researchers in this area, uh, put together a poll with the aid of the Rober organization. And this poll was uh, had a very large sample size. It was like 6,000, which is huge. You can predict the presidential election with 500, but 600 is going to be a very strong figure. So what, the, what they did is they set up a number of questions that you would identify people who are likely to be experiencers, even if they didn't know that they were experiencers. So they asked about 10 of these questions. Five of them they decided later on would be the sort of key questions. And here are the key questions. The first question is, do you have a period of missing time that you can't explain? The second question was, have you ever experienced uh, floating through the air? The third question was, have you seen balls of light moving around a room? The fourth question was, have you ever awakened, paralyzed with a strange presence in the room? And the fifth question was, uh, is there a, a, a wound or a cut or something like that in your body, which you think is significant, but you can't explain? Okay. So what the Roper poll did basically is they did this sampling and they found that if you decided that if you said yes to four of these questions, you were actually an experiencer or very likely to be. Um, what percentage of the samples did that turn out to be? And the answer was one in 50. So um, my memory isn't terrific on this, but I think if you translate that into the population, you know, you get some very large number of people. So one out of 50. So we had one out of 25 
from the experiencer that was in Bud Hopkins' book, who, by the way, has since come out and been more public. Um, so I appreciate her bravery for that. And then one in 50 from the poll. So that's a significant amount. Yeah. So so this is a very interesting question. I, I think we could spend a lot of time talking about this. But the other thing that's, um, well, there are two other things that are striking me. So somebody in MUFON decided that they would ask 150 of their friends <laughs> or acquaintances. Uh, I mean, it's nice to have that many friends um, if they thought they had ever been abducted. And five out of 150, that's one in 30, said that, yes, they thought they had been abducted. So that's one out of 30, okay? Um, and the other thing that was very convincing to me personally was that back when I used to talk about this a lot at parties, and I found that if I went, I, you know, cocktail parties. So, and so I, I discovered that if, if I talked about something like this, almost invariably somebody would come up to me and say, you know, I'm one of those people you were talking about. Or even a couple would come up and say, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're those people that you're talking about. And I've had a similar experience as well. I mentioned my interests um, to people and occasionally someone, and in this case, it was a therapist, will tell me, oh, I've seen a UFO. <laughs> you know, so if people are more open about the conversation, they might be a little bit surprised to find how many other people can share this with them. Um, of course, we're acknowledging that UFO means unidentified, you know, object that, you know, they don't know what it was, but, you know, some people argue that other people know who they, what they are, but that's a whole nother conversation. But <laughs> so well, I wanted to, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, so just... the, the other thing is that, is that if you begin to look at that, it, let's suppose it isn't the actual number is one in 25. All right. Well, believe it or not, that's probably more people than have seen a UFO. And the reason is because most people who think they've seen a UFO haven't. 90% typically have seen something ordinary that just seems strange to them and is really not an unidentified flying object. It's probably an airplane or a star or something else, a planet. Mm -hmm. um, so the number of people who've actually seen a, a UFO that's unidentified is a smaller number. And mm -hmm. the other thing I other comment I wanted to make about the Roper poll, I was brought in later, by the way, when they needed a sociologist to help them interpret the data they got. Right. Um, yeah. So, um, but the interesting thing is they picked four out of five, but they could have picked three out of five. And in fact, somebody else did an evaluation study. And I can't remember who it was. This was a long time ago. Um, and they found that basically if you were positive for three out of five, you typically had some sort of um, uh, abduction imagery in your dreams. So what what is the actual, I don't know. This was an attempt to, this was a step into the dark to try to find out, you know, what, how many people in the American population were potential experiencers. And, and what's uh, interesting is we could also add that as far as seeing a UFO goes, yes, the number may be different from what we suspect it is, 
but there's a lot of UFOs that are unseen. And there's a lot of people who have experiences without seeing a UFO at all. That's correct. Mm -hmm. In fact, the have you seen a UFO is not one of the questions. Uh, the better question would be, have you seen more than one UFO? <laughs> and basically, if you've seen more than one UFO, I would, I personally would bet that they're an experiencer. But it's hard to say. Um, the, the problem is that most of the time, people don't remember the abduction. They know that something strange happened. They know they were missing, uh, that other people thought they were missing and so forth. But they don't know what happened to them. So that only typically comes out under hypnosis. There are there are people, by the way, who don't need to be hypnotized, who remember, or at least as far as they're concerned, you know, remember it all. But uh, Dave Jacobs told me, he said, what people consciously remember often has a very little relationship to what actually happened. He said, once you put them under hypnosis, they often discover things that they didn't know about. And uh, the most common example of that, of course, is these screen memories that people have. Yeah, it seems to be there's some manipulation about what they think is ha has happened to them and what has actually happened to them. And the screen memory may either serve as our own protection to avoid, you know, trauma because the brain is good like that. It just likes to, you know, help us stay sane. Um, or it's a manipulation to, you know, hide from us what happened. And I've heard of many cases where people will suddenly remember, like abruptly remember because of something triggering everything. Like they'll see a blue light and then suddenly they remember everything or they'll hear about this very same case that they themselves reported, also known as what happened to Kurt Russell regarding the Phoenix lights years later and suddenly go, oh yeah, and had not remembered it. Like he didn't remember that he reported it until he saw it on the news. And then he's like, that was me. I reported it. What a strange yeah. lo loss of memory in that case. Well, there's a lot of manipulation. I mean, I think uh, most screen memories are things that are simply imposed by the ETs or whatever you want to call them. And uh, the uh, a lot of uh, experiencers feel that they were told that they wouldn't remember and that they shouldn't remember what happened to them. Um, but the, the really interesting thing to me is that you talk to somebody about deciding that they remember <clears throat> and you put that same person under hypnosis and they remember a lot of earlier <laughs> events as well. Um, the, the thought is that basically these things start relatively early in life. You know, maybe when there's somebody is a, a baby and they continue. Um, it, it's interesting that also that some experiencers have had memories of being abducted when they were younger and then they would meet other people. Um, I forget the name of these two ladies who were both involved with horses who discovered not only that they were both experiencers, but that they had known each other as children having been abducted and then put somewhere else together. Um, and I do some, sometimes feel like it's a game of chess. 
like we're the player we're the pawns in a game of chess and we're being placed with other people to do certain things oh in that sense absolutely yes i i think people are very much manipulated and they also tend to manipulate sometimes people's sexual attraction to people mm -hmm. as, if, as if they want people to get together and have sex and and who knows what happens after that um but um Yes, I mean there's a lot of a lot of manipulation, and the thing is that it seems that um, once they have tagged you or uh, decided that you're a part of their experiment, if it's a, maybe intervention is a better word than experiment, um, but once you're part of the deal, um, you uh, <laughs> you'll be visited again, and you can't typically get away from it. I mean you. You, people move cities and things like that. Doesn't matter. They'll come back. They do come back. Right. There are a lot of people who have rather frequent visits, you know, like Dorothy Ezat and Christopher Bledsoe. Um, it's almost excessive. Like they can show other people the objects because it's that much. It happens that often. Um, so, yeah, I wonder what that's about. Um, and then some people think the implants that some people have are like a tagging system to keep that connection going. So I don't know. There's a lot to ponder with that. So I wanted to ask you if you wanted to talk a little bit about some of the social implications for these people, for these experiencers who are going through all of these things. Well, um, there are two sets of implications. One of them is for the experiencers per se, and the other is for the rest of us. <clears throat> um, because the experiencers essentially are part of, they're the, the, the visible part of whatever the experiment or intervention is. But the rest of us are probably part of the picture too. Um, we may play a different role. Um, so let's let's look at the first issue. So the first issue is what happens to the experiencer? Okay, so the experiences we find out about are people who have figured out that they've had some sort of experience that they need to look into. Uh, if they're hypnotized and they recall the things under hypnosis that happened to them, then they're alive and aware about their experience. And so they're different people in the sense that now not only have they had the experience, but they're aware that they've had the experience. So not surprisingly, sometimes they look for other people who've had the experience. And if you have a, a local alien abduction support group, which I guess some communities have, um, you know, you get a chance to talk to other people who've had the same experience. And in some particularly well-known cases, abductees have married other abductees. Uh, which I suppose is very convenient because you don't have to convince the other person <laughs> that this stuff really happens. They know, you know. Um, so the thing is, there's a th there's also kind of a neighborhood effect. I don't know if you've come across this, but it's typically experiencers have kids who are also experiencers. But also there is a strong demographic tendency for them to be in the same neighborhood with other experiencers. Um, I remember one set of um, <laughs> the, one set of women 
who would get around the coffee table in the morning and they would talk about this and they would curse the ETs or whatever. But it was all of them basically had been abducted the night before on what some of them remembered as a bus uh, with monkeys on it, or in another case, Boy Scouts. Um, so there was clearly some sort of, um, I don't know, transportation effect going on here. Um, and in fact, when I mentioned that group that was a, around someone's living room, that was those people and their friends. There were lots of, there were lots of local experiencers. Interestingly enough, I have seen a pattern where people who study this topic who are really interested in the topic find out that they're living near other people who are researching this topic. I don't know what yeah. that means exactly, but they're like, oh, I lived right across the street from you, well, that kind of thing. I have seen that happen a few times. Well, sometimes it happens with things that they consciously remember, like, did you see that big, you know, ball of light last night, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so then they they start talking and they they find out, oh, yes, well, not only did they see the ball of light, but this is part of a, a pattern that's been happening to them and so forth. Um, the... Um, the issue about the neighborhood is is a uh, is, is a fascinating one to me, because we look for demographic patterns. You know what is the, what is the pattern? So there are some people, um, like this guy Steve Aspen, who just wrote this book called Out of Time, which I recommend to you if, if you're if you're interested. In the one book to read about uh, abductions. This is the one book to read. Out of Time. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but he mentions basically that in addition to people who are clearly part of the experiment or whatever it is, intervention, um, there are other people who sort of happen to be on the scene when things take place. And sometimes they get sucked into it. I mean, for, for instance, I remember going to a, um, an abductee, con not convention, but a, a gathering once upon a time. And this woman said, well, she had been camping with her boyfriend and the little guys came down basically. So the boyfriend just absolutely freaked out. It, you know, like they never wanted to see her again. <laughs> um, but he was clearly a uh, collateral damage for you know the, the fact they were going to take her. There are other famous cases where there's a, I forget what the, the name of the case is, but where a, a, a boy and girl were sitting together and the ufo or whatever it is came down and took both of them and then um they were immediately separated when they got back for some reason and it wasn't until years later that they saw each other again and they talked about what had happened to them um so of uh, you know you have that kind of thing too um but on the bigger question so i so anyway to to make it just to make sure I, I got the point across, that there's some people then who are really not part of the experiment. They're just, they're collateral, collateral damage. They're in the same bed, the same house, something. And they just are brought along and they're not necessarily very happy about it. They often get mad at the person who was the primary uh, target. Um, but this is something to think about. Um, but so on the larger question though, of what happens to society, as this stuff becomes known, okay, 
Uh, I think you steered me to a talk by Alexander Wendt. And I think he is, he's got a very good handle on this. But the, the issue is, and it's sort of like, I hate to borrow something from Karl Marx, but this is very, very helpful. So Marx said basically that if you have a class of people, what the class of people share is that they are in the same economic situation. But he said there's two kinds of states. One is a state where you have these people who are part of the same class, so the class in itself. But if these people become aware that they are in that class, then they are a class for itself. Okay. So this is a very useful way to think about uh, experiencers. If they get to know other experiencers, then they become aware that essentially they're in the same class as these people. Well, what if you have a larger scale version of this? What if a society becomes aware that people are being taken and typically returned? Uh, it's the dynamics of the society. And I think Wendt rightly argues that the, one, of the, one of the changes that can take place is that it tends to undermine confidence in public authority. So, you know, we ordinarily expect organizations like the Army or the Air Force or the Navy to protect us from being interfered with. But what happens if you have somebody that clearly has, or some things that clearly have superior powers? So no longer can the Army or Navy or Air Force protect you from these things. Okay, well, that has potential, a lot of potential impacts. The first obvious impact is that you no longer feel safe. What happens when you feel safe? What happens when you're not, you're not feeling safe and somebody then uh, says, well, you know, there's nothing we can do. All right, well, so that's one state of affairs, the state of affairs where people feel helpless. Well, that's not likely to last for long. I mean, the people are gonna do something about it. Do they turn to religion? Do they turn to uh, fantasy? You know, how are they going to rectify this problem? It's a it's a big issue. The org uh, emphasizes that yes, if the Air Force did tomorrow, which every so often it seems like it's going to happen, uh, the Air Force announces, well, yes, there are UFOs and there's aliens in them. <laughs> Society is not going to sit down and say, oh, that's kind of cool. Um, people are going to get very upset. Uh, people are going to organize. People are going to try to force the government to do something, whether they can or not. And society will change. Do you think there's any possibility that we'll go in a positive direction? Because I believe it was Reagan said that maybe if we had a, a you know, alien threat, we would unify globally and have a global society. Do you think that that's a possible, I, I have a hard time thinking that's gonna happen. I just don't think people can get over their boundaries no matter what, right? Um, we had some shared threats in the past, World War One, World War Two, right? But people continue to stay within their own countries. Um, I know it's a little different when we're talking maybe, um, you know, human versus non-human. I understand that, but I just think those boundaries will remain. But what do you think? Well, I think um, we look for an example. So here's something that was 
over people's heads. Uh, every, everybody who came out could see this. Um, the Air Force delivered some sort of BS explanation for what this was. Um, but it was only later that the governor admitted that, yes, in spite of the fact that he had made fun of it at the time, is that he had looked up and there was this big thing. You know, this was not, you know, this was not a bunch of individual objects. This was a big thing. Okay, if he'd said that at the time, the social reaction would have been very different. In fact, it's interesting to me that now that he's confessed that, that, you know, people seem to be willing to let it go. Um, sometimes you get an interesting situation when there's a, a really awful threat that you can't deal with, and but you've still got other threats you need to deal with right now. So there's a famous movie called Alexander Nevsky, which is about the, the siege of some Russian city and 1242 or something like that. I forget what it was. Um, but Nevsky, the Russian leader, um, is concerned about the fact that the Germans are invading. And the big problem, though, is that there were the Tatars. Well, the Nevsky knew that the Russians couldn't deal with the, the Huns or whatever you want to call them, the Tatars. They couldn't do it. And so he said, well, well, let's ignore that for the moment. Meanwhile, let's deal with the Germans, which is, of course, what the movie is about. There's a huge battle and they beat the Germans. But the Tatars were still out there. Um, so I guess, you know, that's an example of people looking at the, the immediate threats and dealing with those rather than trying to deal with the ultimate threats. Um, I, it'd be nice if everybody would get together. Uh, <laughs> but as a, a, a person who's been in international relations and so forth, it's not likely. Um, the other thing is that, is that the, the Reagan narrative would somehow we'd get together and put the weapons together to deal with the outsiders. It works well in science fiction movies, but I think not in real life. Well, also, it might be a very big mistake to try to direct a weapon at the outsiders. <laughs> you know, like they're, they, they're obviously technologically more advanced than us and would probably laugh <laughs> right well, at the weapon. Yeah. So, I mean, we, I mean, the Air Force has had a lot of experience shooting at UFOs. Um, there is a book called Shoot Them Down, uh, which is about the 1950s and the Air Force's various attempts to. Uh, tag the missiles with uh, machine guns and missiles and, and things like that. And it didn't, none of it worked. And it still doesn't work. So Yeah, and, and uh, there are cases where um, soldiers tried to shoot at them, apparently, and, like, obviously that didn't go well. Um, and there's been cases where these objects have been over bases and were not attacked and still responded badly like people like seem to wipe that slate clean and ignore the fact that we have actually been harmed before by these objects like some people have been harmed um seriously by these objects and i don't know if it's intentional every time i think it's more of a defense mechanism and it could be accidental in other cases but the, the medical effects related to these encounters get sort of swept under the rug quite often. 
Yes, they do. I mean, I think in the, you know, relatively modest experience I've had with experiencers, I would say 50% of the time there's some sort of harm. The other 50% of the time there's some sort of healing or something like that. Um, I think the truth is, is that if you're being abducted, um, they're typically concerned about keeping you in one piece because you're part of the experiment or the intervention, you know, so they're not, they, they will fix you because you, you know, you're going to, you're going to continue to do the experiment. My, my partner has one of these, uh, uh, Apple watches and she's part of a big experiment called insight, uh, which keeps track of people and so forth. Thanks to their Apple watches. And, um, uh, I think you know that these people would, that whoever's running the insight experiment would love to keep these people all, you know, instrumented all the time. I think the truth is that, um, yes, a lot of the harm is probably inadvertent. Um, and the other issue, which I think has to be addressed, is we like to assume that somehow all these craft are connected to each other. And of course, there's no reason that that needs to be true. I think that it's an interesting thought experiment to put yourself in the, about the orbit of the moon and you look at the earth and so forth and you realize that the earth is extremely vulnerable. So um, it's, you don't, you don't, if you're not under the sky, you don't think of the sky as a barrier. The sky is simply there. Okay. So you know, if you've got other civilizations in the galaxy that happen to be able to get from one set of planets to another, uh, there's likely to be more than one. And so we like to think that, you know, the people who are snatching people are basically all part of this thing. And they're the same people who go over the sack bases, but there's no guarantee <laughs> that is the same group of people or same group of things. Yeah, um, some people think, um, and this goes back to hundreds of years ago, um, there was a, a wood carving in Nuremberg um, where they showed UAPs basically battling in the sky. Um, some people think that some of these others are fighting each other. And when you said all of that, I just had this vision of some of them being like police officers, <laughs> making sure that we don't get annihilated by some of the others. <laughs> if, well, if for no other reason, then maybe we're their experiment and they don't want it messed with. I don't know. But I just like had this little vision of UAP police officers. It's a comforting fantasy. Yeah. Um, we, we would like to hope that, that if there are some bad guys, there's also good guys. Who will help us out and uh, i think that's that's absolutely possible but what's the evidence um there are certain people who do, do believe that essentially the ancient gods in fact had some sort of conflict with each other um i have no i i have no real evidence one way or the other it's interesting because even in christianity that that same concept is there, but in the case of Christianity, it's, you know, the head God is having a conflict with the angels, including Lucifer, who is sent down and expelled from where the head God lives, which is heaven, right? 
Um, and I'm saying it that way because I am not so inclined <laughs> to have the same vision of God as other people. But but um, there was conflict and wars in heaven in almost every religion. Um, I can't speak to that point, but I think that there certainly are, are cases where there are you know, a good set of gods and there's a bad set of gods. And, you know, I'm Norwegian by descent. So I tend to think of things in terms of Thor and Loki and so forth. Um, but the truth is, is the on earth are likely to be true elsewhere. And so I think that uh, it's, it's nice to think that somehow there's people out there that are sort of like the Star Trek Enterprise that are you know, trying to help people out and they don't want to interfere too much with the local level of uh, technology. But I think this is basically a fantasy. Uh, much more likely that if somebody is advanced uh, thousands of years, and that's a minimum, could be millions. Um, they may regard us as an interesting biological experiment. And... Uh, then there's other things that they could do with us. So, and I think, you know, certainly that the thing, the data that Dave Jacobs has put together suggests that there's some sort of grooming going on. And, you know, I don't think that's impossible at all. Belay indicated the same thing. And he talks about that rather often that some of the acts that have been done to us seem to be prodding us in a direction. Um, and, there seems to be sort of like a trickery element to all of it. Um, but we're being guided in a direction, which, you know, actually a lot of people believe in the future human hypothesis. And they think that, that we are being manipulated in our timeline. And it gets really, really complicated. But it's the same idea that these UAPs are us trying to manipulate us to do certain things so we don't have the same future outcome. Well, it, yes, it's nice to think that basically they're, at least some of them are benevolent. And it's interesting, by the way, if you read the um, the books written by Artie Sixkiller Clark, I don't know if you're <clears throat> familiar with her, but she Dang. has written a series of books basically on um, indigenous peoples, mostly Native Americans. And their experiences, what, what she calls the star men. Okay. Well, if you try to fit this, the experiences that she describes, some of the star men that she describes are people who are obviously benevolent and they keep track of the same tribes or even the same people to help them out from time to time. Um, some of the other experiences are very much like the Hopkins Jacobs model, um, basically catch and release. Um, so I think it's it's the, the important thing about Six Killer Clark is that she doesn't really have a point of view, at least if if she does have it's not apparent. So she gets a variety of different kinds of experiences that people have. And so that's probably not unlikely. It's not unlikely that some of the groups that are dealing with us or have different attitudes, policies, and so forth than the others. Um, the and group it's per that, se different agendas. 
definitely definitely different agendas were yes. indicated in her books that's right and uh yes so the the problem is that recently went to france and tried to get the french uh ufo group which is part of their space agency interested in abductions and uh I think they absorbed more than they were willing to admit. But um, the the issue is, you know, what's what's really going on? Can you really can you see a, a similarity between what's happening in France and what's happening here? And the answer is, in the few French abduction cases that we know about, the answer is yes. Is that it? There's the same kind of agenda. Um, so, but how wide is that? Is that true of all nations? Um, for instance, in South America, uh, there seems to be some sort of different agenda in the uh, experiences that people have, um, more hostility. You know what? I actually think it would be very interesting if we did have someone who was like a liaison between all these different groups, now that you mention it, um, because I have done research um, on the international level. And there are groups everywhere. It, and it sounds like you've done some of this work, but it would be great if that was sort of an established thing. I know that, you know, the conferences that are international do attract a lot of different people, but not all of that information is shared with others that are not going to those conferences. But it would certainly be interesting for some of those patterns to be identified and shared. Yes, I think this is... Yeah, I mean, the first thing to do is to get people <laughs> in the United States aware of what's going on. Then we'll work on France. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I literally, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to get the French interested in their own abductions because unlike here, there's, you know, there's no encouragement of people reporting. So what they don't, what they don't have is they don't have the reports, but I think they still have the same events. So uh, what's, you know, what, what would happen if the French suddenly decided, well, yeah, you know, let's do a survey and we, they could they could replicate the, the Roper poll in France mm -hmm. and find out. I mean, it wouldn't cost that much money. And it'd be sure, it would sure be nice to know. Well, speaking, I want to, you know what, that reminded me. I should have asked this earlier. Do you think now that you have time to look back at the Roper poll, if you would have added other indicators? Absolutely. Okay. What other, what, which ones I would, would you? Have, well, uh, seeing a UFO is, is certainly the, the key one, but the, the, the most important thing is how close was the UFO? It used to be basically that we had close encounters and then there were close encounters of the third kind and so forth. The fact is that now if somebody says that they were within, you pick the number, 100 feet of the craft, we assume that they're they're abductees. I mean, that's that's just how it is, and I think that's a re very good rule of thumb. Uh, if they can actually, you know, if they're close enough so they could throw a stone at it, yeah, they were taken. Um, but the problem is that countries don't collect similar information. At the moment, the one thing that seems to be going international is is that people are willing to talk about this as a hazard to air navigation. Okay, so we have people who are in 
uh, in the United States in NARCAP, for instance, that's what they, they look at the hazards navigation, air navigation posed by the, the uh, craft. Um, and so other countries, that's easy to export. You know, it's, it's non-ideological. Everybody's got airplanes. And so, um, you know, this is a good thing that open a conversation on. And in fact, I think this is where the French and the Americans <laughs> will probably communicate first, not, not through NASA. And, and you know, it's funny because that is the flip of what it used to be. Because back in the days of the Robertson panel and the Condon committee and all of those things, their quick go-to was this is not an issue of national security. And now everything is, this is an issue of national security. This is a concern for, uh, related to security. It's a flip. But that yes. seems to be what gets the money, right? Well, the funny thing is that you can't, claim this is not an issue for national security if these things are over our missile bases and they seem to be over our missile bases in great profusion so this clearly is a number one issue in national security i mean they have actually in many cases set off uh trains of action on these missile bases that would result in missiles launching without human intervention stopping it. and the russians have had the same experience and yet, I don't know why that all those incidents happened years ago, but it just seems now, just now, <laughs> in society today, the the narrative is different. I don't know why. What do you think it is about now that has changed how they're communicating this? Uh, what's happened is basically, in the in the case of the SAC bases, a lot of the people who were the witnesses have retired. So they've got their pensions, you know, they're not, <laughs> nothing's going to happen to them from the hierarchy for talking about this stuff. Um, the Nimitz case is an interesting one because that was 2004. So this was 16 years ago and people knew it, you know, well before this came out in the New York Times. Uh, Jacques Vallée mentioned this, this case to me um, in 2014. And yet nobody really paid attention to it. Um, but everything somehow has changed. I think, I kind of think that basically the armed services are getting ready to make an announcement. What kind of announcement? I don't know. Uh, are they gonna admit that Roswell took place? Who knows? Um, well, what's interesting about that is that there have been a number of things that have led up to this. First, there was the revelation that we had ATIP and OSAP, right? Um, the yeah. article that came out that exposed that. The admission of the videos being UAPs. Then there's, you know, the admission that there's quite a number of unidentified cases that came out in the report. And then in the middle of all of that, NASA was assigned to do some work on what would happen if we made contact with extraterrestrials and they had religious figures come together to have that conversation. Then we had, the, yeah, they were given, I think a million dollars to sit down and have a conversation about that. Yep. Um, um, I, I, it's somewhere in congressional record. 
Um, I ran into it a while back. And then, of course, we had the Catholics coming out saying they would baptize extraterrestrials. Then we had the Webb telescope go up. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. And then they, they had the Webb telescope go up. And, of course, everyone's interested in the exoplanets. Then we had people who worked on Mars say, technically, we already found life there. And in 2030, they're going to be bringing Mars samples down. Um, so they're probably going to confirm that again. So there is a lot of stuff that's lining up right now. And I think that's a factor. But I think there's a hidden factor that they're not telling us about. Um, could it be an increase in sightings? Could it be just an, a concern about the fact that they need to be paying attention to our airspace anyway? It's crazy to me that they wouldn't have people report, right? <laughs> so, because obviously there's drones too from foreign adversaries, right? So why they wouldn't have people reporting, I don't know. It's beyond me. But yeah, so there's a lot of stuff going on. I just, I think those are all factors, but I just think there might be something hidden behind all of it. I mean, even Obama has come out and said stuff. And Neil, um, Neil, I can't remember his name. This, yeah, this, the scientist is starting to get used to, the scientists are starting to come forward and get used to this idea, right? Slowly but surely, more and more scientists are getting involved. And then, um, you know, I think uh, there's been some little comments made by other presidents. And, you know, there was the WikiLeaks. There's a lot, a lot of buildup. Did you know you can't even open those presidential library records on UFOs right now? That it would take like 20 years to get the access to that? Well, 20 years was a lot of presidents were around 20 years ago. Eisenhower would be a particularly interesting one to look at. Right. Well, I think that some of those might be available now. Definitely would like to know if there's something in there hidden about UFOs, but um, Clinton and Obama's, I think, are on hold. John Greenwald from the Black Vault was not able to get access to the UFO files for the Obama administration yet. I, I don't think you're going to get access to those files. I mean, I think there's some stuff that they they probably occasionally have made mistakes, but usually they're pretty good at buttoning things up. Well, apparently they have a ridiculous number of them. <laughs> like, apparently there's thousands. <laughs> it, it could be. I mean, the FBI files are quite revealing about um, John Edgar Hoover and the uh, stuff that the FBI tried to investigate mm -hmm. came out. A lot of it came out through the uh, the uh, UFOs and nukes uh, book by Robert Hastings. Yes, it's interesting that how often when someone writes a book, suddenly the rest of the world gets to find out because the FOIAs that were mentioned in the book now the public can see them. But but here's a sad truth that back in the 70s, the Washington Post did an article talking about the fact that the CIA had a ton of FOIAs on UFOs, were still observing UFO cases, were still interested, and no one seemed to notice. No one said anything. Oh, why did they have 500 FOIAs? You know, why was the Washington Post given so much information from the government? 
And then I come into this topic and I had no idea that the CIA had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of documents related to UFOs. Like people just didn't notice. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sorry, I'm not up on that particular aspect, but it, would, it wouldn't surprise me that there's, there's lots of stuff. And it's not just the CIA, it's a national security agency. And on, mm -hmm. on that. Um, I think the truth is that, that there have been so many things that are absolutely smoking gun cases. I think the Nimitz thing is probably, in terms of everything so far, is the, the most uh, obvious example of a smoking gun case. And he really couldn't put that stuff away. And it amazes me that the Nimitz stuff was allowed to come out because they, they, they clearly could have silenced the people who come forward on it, the pilots and the radar people and so forth. But they decided not to. Somebody decided not to. Yeah, maybe there's a sense of being fed up, fed up with keeping it quiet. Maybe there was some people who had a personal, you know, family story. Like, there's a lot of people who say someone in my family had this happen to them, right? You know, um, the Queen's husband, one of his family members who had something to do with um, UFOs. So he was fascinated by it. And he collected a lot of UFO information um, before he passed away. So I feel like that there's potentially something personal for some of these people. Or maybe well, they were saw something and got really tired of being told to be quiet. Well, the other thing, if you, if you look at the Roswell case, basically a lot of people made confessions only on their deathbed. So then you don't have to worry about your pension being abbreviated or whatever. Um, but um, the, the interesting thing to me is that, you know, you have the, this recent congressional hearing with the uh, intelligence community and even the Navy version of the intelligence community coming forward and saying, well, yeah, we're going to look at this stuff. <laughs> you know, where have you folks been in the last, you know, 50 years, you know? Did you not notice that this was going on before? Well, that's are you really going to talk about it now? I mean, to me, the fascinating thing is NASA. Um, is that here is an organization that basically has dedicated itself to the premise that there could be life on other worlds, but we're not going to contact it. You know, I think that's absolutely hilarious. Well, and we also know that NASA has studied UFOs before. <laughs> so that that's also, um, there was one person in particular, even in his obituary, it talks about how he worked for NASA to study UFOs. And um, he is on the memorial page for the UFO connector, but people don't know that. Um, they all just kind of hear that NASA didn't want to have anything to do with UFOs. And that's what they, the going line was, right? But, but now they're here. And of course, I'm upset because I feel like they're presenting themselves as being forced to be here. But, you know, there's a lot of rumors about NASA and UFOs, like, you know, things about airbrushing and things like that. Oh, that's, that stuff is minor. I mean, I think they've got, there, there's all sorts of, there's stuff that's much more disturbing than that. Um, so I can't remember what, which uh, Air Force test pilot came forward and said, well, you know, we had some of these out at Edwards Air Force Base and, you know, we took pictures and so forth. And 
you know, so that we were told to send in the, the pictures. Um, but they didn't tell us to send in the negatives. <laughs> oh, wow. So, but anyway, it's, you know, but, but there's all sorts of stuff like that. I mean, everybody, everybody in the business has got some sort of story about stuff that something that didn't come out, you know, and so forth. So, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I'm fascinated by what happened with the footage at Holloman Air Force Base, that the government essentially told the director that he could present that footage in his documentary, the one he did in the 70s. I think it was, oh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but Valet was in it. And um, then they turned around and said, never mind, you can only put like this little snippet in. <laughs> But at least it's in there, right? It's real UFO footage at an Air Force base. Again, no one really is jumping all over that. Wouldn't that have been a smoking so, gun also? Well, one day I was doing a program on television. Um, I was being interviewed for a program on television. And one of the cameramen waved to me and he said, come, you know, come back and talk to me. And he said that he'd, when he was down at Cape Canaveral, he had walked in on a, a movie, obviously, you know, more like an hour or two hours long that had one set of UFOs after another on it. And things that had been seen off of aircraft carriers and so on and so forth. And, um, and this, I mean, this was, this encounter was 30 years ago that I had with this, cameraman i think there are probably huge numbers of films out there and i think only the threat of the removal of pensions and 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 maybe even violence is what's keeping the stuff in the in the background well i am very hopeful that we'll get to a more positive place it's worth noting that a lot of people have claimed, including, you know, the Robertson panel and so on, that there would be mass hysteria. And mass hysteria doesn't really work the way that they were implying. All the cases that have happened in the past of mass hysteria have been very small groups, like, you know, 20, 30, 40, maybe up to a couple hundred people, not the whole world. I think that they're, um, they were underestimating our response I hate to say this, but I think that in America, it would take two weeks for people to get over it. They'd, they'd hear it. I really do. I think they'd be like, oh, that's amazing. And then two weeks later, okay. <laughs> you know, there's like no reaction nowadays when we find a new species on our own planet at all. No one knows. No one pays attention. But we find new species on our own planet all the time. No one is like, unless you are just in that field. Most people are not very fascinated about the discoveries that are occurring now in our own ocean, right? So well, I just... Yes. The other thing is what what are the phenomena that accompany the awareness? <clears throat> if you're talking about an intellectual thing where somebody says, oh yes, there's life on another planet and we've been able to communicate with them with signals and stuff like that, wouldn't, wouldn't upset people. But you put something like the Phoenix Lights, which was actually a thing <laughs> over several American cities. And, and, you know, you would see all, you would see large scale mass hysteria. I have no doubt about it. You know what though, those people saw that. There were at least a thousand people who witnessed that and they're still functioning in society now. And it didn't impact the whole world that way. You know what I mean? Like 
because it was it was explained away. I mean, I think the thing that you have to understand is how good is the explanation? If it's there's only one city and they can plausibly suggest it's flares or something like that, which is what they did, um, go away. I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, like 12 or something like that, I remember listening to the, uh, what was the thing down in Texas, the Lubbock, Lubbock Lights. Yep. Okay. And while that was going on, okay. So that was pretty exciting, but somehow it, it all died away. Okay. Um, if you, all you'd have to do is say that Roswell was real and all of a sudden things would rapidly change. I don't know. I just, I just feel like a lot of people nowadays just take it for granted that it is like, I talk to my kids sometimes and I'm like, I'm fairly sure that aliens exist. You know, I don't push their ideology or anything like that too much. I definitely let them make their own decisions about religion and things like that. Um, but they're just like, oh, okay, so what? <laughs> well, look, look at what, what's happening with the skinwalker hitchhiker phenomenon. I mean, here's something where basically paranormal events seem to be passed almost directly from one family to another. And, um, if you if you multiplied that, if it if if that's spread out, that would provide a really interesting example of mass uh, something or other. You know what I think though, and and I think this is another thing we have to consider when we're talking about sociology, is that there's really a cultural aspect to this. Okay, so our modern American mentality, which a lot of people say is Purit puritanical right <laughs> um maybe it's very very different than other cultures regarding this topic so like if we were to go to certain people in japan and talk to them for instance about ghosts they would just say well of course there are ghosts in fact i gave ghosts a taxi ride the other day you know um and out of respect for them i think it's our there's a certain group of people the majority of modern americans that are having a hard time with this that the rest of the world is not in the same place with like i just don't think the hysteria would be worldwide i really don't well again it has to do with the stimulus what's the stimulus it's a stimulus is basically they're you know putting down spaceships and rounding up people I think there would be some <laughs> very strong reaction. You know, if you've got a light in the sky that they can't explain, you know, that's not a big deal. No, you're right. But I do think there's some people who would be like, sign me up. You know, just like an Independence Day, the people on the roof with the signs, there's a lot of people who would say, oh, yeah, I want to go check that out. And they'd be lining up. They'd be like, you don't need to kidnap anyone. We will come straight to you. We volunteer. Yeah, well, the same, there's same divisions in the experiencer community. There are a lot of people who feel this is a very positive thing. The Space Brothers are going to help us out and so forth. And, you know, who's to say they're wrong? But the I, other I, ones are really not eager to have that happen at all. They would lo love to have it go away. Yes, yeah, so and we've talked about this before, um, about how that could potentially be a matter of trying to take back control um, or maybe even um, trying to defend yourself by changing how you view the experience when people make these positive statements. 
it's a possibility. Yeah. Well, I, I think that the, the truth is, is that when we start doing some real scientific research on experiencers and uh, we start getting some real data, you know, we'll have a much better handle on this than we have now. The problem now is that basically people who are uh, experiencers look to uh, experts or whatever they are uh, who have the same view as they do and they want to talk to those people. Yes, actually, we've talked about that also, that it's one of the challenges of people are seeking treatment. Um, they are going to look for people who, um, well, they want to look for people who believe them. And the bigger issue, in my opinion, is that if you're going to go to a therapist, it doesn't, shouldn't matter if they believe you or not. You should be treated the same no matter what. That's my opinion. Well, I don't know. My my partner is a therapist, and I I think her view is very different. Is that they, the people, people expect to be believed. If you tell people that you know what your what the experience you had is wrong, they're not going to tell you very much. And th this is a problem with the French. The French really don't believe that there are abductions, basically. Hmm. And so, um, so nobody tells them about it, you know. And it's interesting. I remember being over at Dave Jacobs' house and looking at a closet full of letters to Bud Hopkins. Um, so in this closet, there must have been something like three or 4,000 letters, okay? So I don't think there's anybody in France that has a closet full of letters. And the reason is very simple. You know, they don't talk about this stuff as a valid experience. So of course, nobody's telling them about it because it doesn't happen. Right. Hmm. Well, you know, I think some people told Valet some things because he wrote Passport to Magonia some time ago, and he mentions that there were abductions that were reported before um, the major ones in the news, right? That there were some small cases that not that many people knew about. And I guess at the time, Valet may have been in the United States, but I suspect more leaked out than the French wanted. <laughs> Well, I mean, I know, I remember the year, basically, I talked to Jacques Vallée in 1970, and uh, <laughs> we uh, we discussed a lot of these, these issues, uh, but the truth is that, you know, many of the earlier cases, like the Villaboas case and so forth, um, seemed to be isolated. They, they seemed to be on their own. It wasn't until the 1980s when Bud Hopkins got his act going, that you begin to see hundreds of cases, okay? And the reason's very simple, because he put his address in the back of his first book, inviting people to write in. And even before he wrote the book, there was an article about the Obarski case, which appeared first in the Village Voice, small New York publication, and eventually in Cosmopolitan, circulation about probably three million. Um, and he got huge amounts of letters as a result of that. So I think that part of it is the what, what psychologists call the demand conditions. You know, what people do, what they're expected to do. And if the expectations were going to report, then they report. Now, I see often still to this day that a lot of people are not sure where to go, um, which 
you know, I, it's interesting to me because if once you enter, I feel like these are all people that enter the UFO community, it should be really obvious, right? It should be obvious where to go to get support. I'll mention a few places now in case someone's listening who hasn't gotten support. Um, one place you can go is Opus. They work with people who have paranormal experiences, not just with UFOs, but with other things, other entities, etc. Um, then you can also go to the Four Experiencer Group, um, which has a website and is run by um, some amazing people. You can find them on Twitter. They're pretty frequently there. Jay King is one of them. And then there's also the um, ERT Group with MUFON. So if you report an incident with MUFON, they have a support group also. MUFON is M-U-F-O-N. If anyone is listening who doesn't know anything about MUFON, um, go look there. But I guess to me, again, my amazement is that people don't know that there's a lot of support groups in place. In fact, those are just three of many that I've seen. There is a book called Welcome to the New Age. And one of the pages in this book and this was 20 years ago. So welcome to your local alien abduction support group. You know that there was a comedy recently on TV about um, an alien abduction support group. It had two seasons and it was actually rather accurate. Whoever created it did their research, including um, the animal screen um, memory aspect. They showed that one of the people kept imagining that he'd hit a deer um and that was his screen memory and they had a nordic they had a gray they had a reptilian i was like whoever made this was actually doing their research i mean it was a little offensive in some areas of course but i was actually impressed by the some of the things in that taken comedy. on the sci-fi channel was very good i mm -hmm. mean I, I think 90 percent of the stuff that they reported is stuff that really you could find in case reports. Well, Ron, we're going to be wrapping up shortly. I wanted to give you just the last few minutes maybe to talk about any other sociological points you really think people should know related to the UFO UAP topic, especially for right. experiencers. Yeah. I, I think yeah, the most important point is that, that there is support out there. And uh, again, that the, the, the the biggest problem is that people don't tell other people that they've had these experiences. I was sitting with a couple of my friends one night sipping wine and all of a sudden the wife uh, says to me, she said, you know, I'm one of those people you've, you've been talking about. And I just about fell out of my chair because her husband and I had been investigating all sorts of UFO reports and she had never said a word. Okay. So sometimes, and it's so I sometimes ask people, so what do you think about this? You know, but the truth is that there are other people out there. There are groups that are willing to talk to you. There are people who are willing to listen. And there occasionally are people who are willing to do the hypnosis that's valuable. Um, that's help you figure out what happened that you can't remember. Someone's definitely trying to get a hold of you, Ron. Your, is that your phone that keeps going off? No, it's Just my like computer. Oh, okay. I was like, someone's trying to get a hold of you. Um, you know what, Ron? I did have a question that I've almost forgot um, that comes from our friend Shane. 
Um, he wanted to know about your work with the Balls of Light. And I'm going to say this wrong in Yakima Valley because he heard you mention it. Um, and he said that it was a, a very similar experience to what he went through. And I was just wondering, since I know we just have only a little bit of time left, I apologize to Shane that I just remembered that I should ask you this. But I was wondering if you could just kind of summarize what happened there, because Shane wants to talk more about that with you at some point. Yeah, well, so uh, there are different sizes of balls of light. Some are some are big and some are small. I've got to get my phone off here. Uh, the... Um, the ones in, in the Yakima Indian Reservation, which, by the way, it seems to be the number one UFO spot in the United States. Uh, the, the ones in the, the Yakima Reservation are big on the order of, you know, something like four or five feet upwards. And um, that's the reason I went out there in 1982 to do a, a study of what was happening. And uh, so it's um i think you know people people see these big balls of light going through the sky they've got people sitting on living literally sitting on mountaintops because they're watching for fires in the valleys and they saw these balls of light moving in and out of canyons okay so obviously you know this is something that needed to be investigated i went and investigated and one of these days i'll write up the report that i promised and haven't done well, I think Shane will be looking forward to that. And I hope that he gets a chance to talk to you more about his experiences. Um, because it sounds like it was very close by. Not far from Hanford. Is what he said. That's where Yakima is. Mm -hmm. it's, so it's hopefully, yeah, hopefully he'll get to talk to you about that in the future. Um, to, to wrap up, Ron, can you please let everyone know how they can find you and maybe talk a little bit about what you're going to be working on in the near future besides that report, which everyone's <laughs> going to now expect? <laughs> um, well, uh, I'm a professor at Eastern Michigan University. And if you go on the EMU website and you look at the sociology department, you can find a way to contact me. Um, what I'm going to be working on in, in the basically the UFO field is I'm going to try to expand the, the work that I did on um, experiencers and uh, what what I'm interested in is reporting. Why do people report? I looked at a lot of Bud Hopkins letters to try to figure out why it is that people wrote in, and the most interesting thing that I noticed was it was typically I read Communion. I read intruders and then I wrote a letter and then I wadded it up and threw it away. And then I wrote another letter and that's what I'm sending to you. So the interesting thing to me is it takes a lot of encouragement for people to report a abduction or ex experience or event. And so all I can tell you is it's, you know, let somebody know. Well, thank you so much for everything that you have done for all of this time and that you continue to do. You are invaluable to us. And, you know, at, for me personally, I'm just very glad that I have met you because I just love talking to you. <laughs> You're just like one of my favorite people. So thank you so much for everything that you do. And thank you for talking to us today. And thank you also for your contributions to the UAP Medical Coalition Thank you so much.
My pleasure. And, and to all those listening, this was Deb from Deb's Data Dojo, part of the Calling All Beings podcast network. If anyone needs to find me, I'm at Study of UAPs. I'm also on the Calling All Beings YouTube channel, um, ufoconnector.com, and all over social media. Take care, everybody. 